Our scripture reading this morning is John 2, 1 through 12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. We are in the middle of a series that we're calling At the Table. Uh, we are looking at, uh, thanks so much, we're looking at different passages where Jesus uses the table to teach people about grace. Uh, if you were to look at many of the stories of Jesus, it seems like Jesus was going from meal to meal and using that table to, uh, to draw people together and for them to experience nearness, relationship, and healing. Last Sunday, we didn't meet as a church in, in this way. We met as a church in different homes. We called uh, this Sunday, that Sunday morning our brunch church. So we met around tables and gathered people together and because uh, we want to experience what does it look like to see the table as a place where we can gather and experience relationship and community and wholeness. Uh, for many people in here in this room, you might be new, new to Scripture, and we love that. We love the fact that some of you uh, are coming in with a sense of openness, uh, but maybe, that, maybe you don't have the background or understanding um, of what Scriptures are actually teaching. We actually purchased a bunch of Bibles for you. So if, you'd if you don't have a Bible and would like one, we have a bunch of Bibles for you at our guest center. Uh, for those unfamiliar with Scripture, the four gospel accounts that were written about Jesus' life and ministry, they weren't written at the same time. Many of us, we think, well, it must have been done at the same time. Mark was written first, and then uh, Matthew and Luke came after that. And then the book of John came. And it, it, it had some time before it came out, almost as if the, the writer, John, if he was sitting there and ruminating about what was that really about? Like, what really happened? John replayed memories and remembered things that Jesus said, and all of a sudden, uh, you can tell from his writings that he began to draw layers to the, his experience with Jesus. And so we find in, in John's gospel, it almost reads like poetry. Uh, it almost reads uh, with just this richness and layeredness to the scripture, and that invites us to slow down. And just like you wouldn't read poetry and try to just pull out data, you read poetry and you find yourself wondering, how could I enter this story? The book of John is written that way, and especially we see here in this passage just a really rich story about what Jesus was up to. Uh, this was the first miracle in the book of John. 
So Jesus' first miracle was not healing someone, curing someone's blindness or illness. His first miracle here takes place at a wedding, and there's something for us there. We're going to talk about this passage on three different levels. We're going to first talk about it as a table for the wedding. Secondly, we're going to talk about it as a table for the original hearers, so the people who heard John for the first time, what they would have understood. And then lastly, we're going to talk about a table for us. What might this passage mean for us? So first we find in in verses 1 and 2 of John 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. I first off just think it's just wonderful that Jesus was the type of person that you would want at your wedding, right? We have this idea of God being some aloof, distant, perhaps maybe disciplinarian, and Jesus here breaks that mold. Jesus is someone you want at your party, and Jesus also seems like he brought his entourage with him wherever he went. So it was Jesus and his disciples are here at this wedding. And uh, these weddings, they lasted longer than our weddings usually do, which I know for many of you who have just married off kids, you are grateful we don't live in that day and age. Um, But these weddings, they lasted around a week that the whole community would gather and and the couple would wear their wedding garments for for the week and the couple would have to host this festival for the community. It was a huge, huge deal. So we understand the problem that we see here in verse three. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Jesus responded, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he, do whatever he asks, do whatever he instructs. And I just uh, see, we hear Mary, and Mary, she saw this like a good mother. She sees this party, she sees the problems, and she notices that the wine is running out. This would have been a huge social disgrace for this couple, for this family, for this wine to go out. It would be an awful way to begin your marriage. <laughs> it would be an awful way to enter into the community. Uh, and so Mary notices and sees Jesus as a possibility of a way that, that, that there could be a solution. And uh, it's kind of confusing. This interaction between Jesus and Mary is, is a little bit odd. Uh, first off, it kind of reads a little bit weird. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Right? It's, it sounds, in our culture, it would be a little bit challenging to have uh, some of you kids, you're probably listening to this going, hmm, so you can talk to your mother that way? <laughs> you're up in your room playing Xbox your mother comes upstairs, it's time, uh, it's time for dinner. Dear woman, why do you involve me with such things? Don't you see, I'm busy. Uh, you know, uh, this, this word that Jesus is using, dear woman, um, is, actually a, is actually a word of tenderness, it's a word of gentleness. Uh, we see Jesus actually use the same phrase uh, when he was, uh, he was on the cross, The last thing he said to his mother was, dear woman, here's your son. Son, here's your mother. And do you know who Jesus said that to? Obviously his mother, but also John. So we see like this interaction, John remembering, dear woman. So it's a a moment of of gentleness. I don't read it as a moment of, uh, you know, of discord or anything like that. It's actually a moment of gentleness. 
but it is a little bit odd. Jesus says, my hour has not come. This is going to be a phrase that will be a theme in the book of John. Uh, I counted that John used it 22 times, my hour. Jesus continually used and referenced this term, my hour. Uh, and he literally used the phrase, my hour has not come, two more times in the book of John. And what was he pointing to? When Jesus is speaking of his hour, he's talking about the climactic event of Jesus' death and resurrection, that he was looking towards that hour. So what might have that mean for Jesus to say, my hour has not yet come? Well, I think Jesus is looking at perhaps that once he begins this journey, it's, he's heading towards the cross. He's beginning a journey towards the cross. And I actually see Jesus as being conflicted about that. We know that that's his purpose, but that is not something that he would have rushed to uh, until John 17, 1. He's gathering with his disciples around uh, the Last Supper, and he actually says here, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. And at that point, his eyes were set on the cross. Uh, we see here that Jesus, he knew what his mission was. He knew what his ministry was. And Mary, this is the part of the story I love, just the interaction between Mary and, and Jesus. Because uh, even though Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, Mary still says to the servants, do whatever he says. And Jesus then goes and he does it. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit peculiar. I'm not really sure why. Why is it that Jesus chooses to save the day? And how did Mary know that Jesus could do that? Was that like a, like a party trick that she would have Jesus do? You know, it's... It's peculiar, but the fact of the matter is that Jesus, he saw this disgrace, and he cared. In verse 6, nearby stu stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding with them 20 to 30 gallons. These are huge pieces. These are huge, and especially when you think about it being full with water, how heavy would that be, right? How heavy might that be? Now, I, I actually found a painting that kind of helped us with this. This is a painting that's, uh, that's hung in the, in the Louvre in Paris. And I love this painting. If you go to the next slide, uh, it just looks like chaos, this party. It just looks kind of wild. Like people up in the rafters along the side, is this like a, like a pre-Mardi Gras day or something like that? And there's all of this activity, all of this going on. And if you go to the next slide, there's different parts of this painting that points to different parts of the story. And here is the servant filling up these huge water jars. Now, these jars were used for ceremonial washing. So when Jesus is saying, I want you to take those jars and fill them up with water, these servants are probably, probably a little confused, right? These huge jars, they went to go get it and fill up with water. And so people, that, people in that day, they would wash their hands and wash utensils before sitting down to eat. It was like a, an access into having table fellowship. They couldn't sit down before they had their hands washed. It was, but it was also a religious experience. It was a religious practice. So imagine the confusion of these servants. They're told to go get these, these jars of water. In verse 7, uh, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them with the brim. And then he said... Go and draw some of this out and take it to the master of the banquet. <laughs> they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants 
who drew the water out, they knew. And then he, drew, he brought the bridegroom aside and he spoke this word. Before we get to that, can you imagine the awkwardness and the fear of these servants? For this random man to say, all right, go fill up those jars that you usually use to wash your hands. Okay, now draw some out and give it to the master of the banquet, who's kind of like, if you've been on a cruise, the person who keeps the party going, right? Gonna uh, draw some out and give it to him. These servants, if it would have backfired, it would have, they wouldn't been, really been able to blame Jesus, right? They would have, it would have been on them. Yet they do so. And this moment of tension happens, which I love. When did the water get turned into wine? When do we see that happen? It really doesn't say. It really doesn't say when it happened. Somewhere between when they filled up the jars, when it was given to the master of the banquet, it was turned into wine. Almost to say something about who Jesus is. Did Jesus grandstand this miracle? Did he stop the party? Did he say, guys, I'm going to do something and people will be talking about it for thousands of years, so I hope you appreciate it? Did he, did he even draw aside the bride and the groom? Did he even tell his mother Mary? No, Jesus, this, he lives a different way. He ministers in a different way. Other than his disciples, who are the ones that got to see Jesus' first miracle? got to participate in it. It was the servants. And this is the way of Jesus. He denies the affection of the crowds. He dodges the promotions of the powerful. Instead, he goes to the people in the shadows. He goes to the people who have learned not to be noticed. And he says, you, I want you to see my glory. I want you to taste my kingdom. I want you to see who I truly am. This is the way of Jesus. He does it time and time again. We see here that Jesus, he does care about social disgrace. He did see this bride and this groom and the disgrace that would have been in their, in their marriage and this new life, and he provided a way out. Jesus did that time and time again. We might think that God only cares about our soul, about us getting to heaven or something like that, but we see in Jesus that God cares about the fullness of who we are as people. God cares about our bodies, our minds, our spirits, and even our social health. We see oftentimes when Jesus would give some, do something miraculous to people, he would also restore them into community. He'd say, I want you to not follow me. I want you to go back to your hometown. Or for the, for, uh, the people who were lepers, who were cast out of the religious community when Jesus healed them, he said, I want you to go to the temple. I want you to show yourself to the priests. I want you to be restored. For us as a community, we want to help restore people socially as well. We want to see people who have experienced injustice and pain been cast aside, and we want to help lift them up and help them experience the God-given value that they have. We see here that Jesus created and saved this wedding table. He revealed himself. He covered a disgrace. But there's another layer deeper for the people who originally would have heard this. This is a table for the original audience. Something deeper that they would have picked up on that we might. And it has to do with the jars. Ceremonial washing to wine. There seems to be something to that that we could learn. You see that these washings, like I said earlier, was a prerequisite for someone to be able to sit down and have table fellowship. It was a way of cleaning themselves before they could enter into relationship. 
And you see the problem with that. To be able to have this kind of religious cleansing before you can enter into relationship. Jesus took that, which was a barrier for some people, before being able to have relationship, to come as you are. Jesus took that and turned it into something totally different. You see, religion is great at creating barriers. Religion is great at building fences. You see, fences protect. Fences block out those who we don't want. It clarifies who's in and who's out. For someone who is outside of that culture, for them to be able to sit down at the table, they would not have known how to wash themselves, to prepare themselves. And religion is really good about excluding some people and letting other people in. Do you believe what we believe? Will you act how we act? If so, then you're allowed in the fence. You see, with Jesus, Jesus was not about building fences. Jesus was about creating a table. The difference between fences and a table is this. With fences, the question is, will you believe in what we believe? Will you act like we act? Those are the questions of religion. And the question with Jesus is this. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? This is the question of the gospel. And the gospel and religion, are not, they don't, they're not the same. The question of the gospel is, do you have a hunger in your life and are you willing to turn and trust in Jesus to provide for that? You see here that Jesus took that which resembled the law, that which resembled barriers, and instead he turned it into wine. He created a party. We see Jesus that he took that which distinguished who was inside and outside, and he demonstrated that this whole community is gathered in for this party, this celebration. This is the way with Jesus. That Jesus, he wanted to dismount the power of religion in that day and in our day so that we all could come as we are to this table and experience grace and friendship. This is the way with Jesus. It's no wonder why where Jesus went right after this passage in John 2. Jesus went right after this passage and went to the temple and cleared it out. Jesus wanted to disrupt religion. He wanted to disrupt that because he was about creating something new. He was about creating a new way of relationship, a new way of experiencing grace and forgiveness. There's some of us who haven't moved over yet to what is better. There's some of us who are still stuck in this idea of religion where it's a, our religious life is a life about sin management and image protection learning how to distance ourselves from other people who don't believe what we believe. Rather than following religion, as a community, we're stuck on following Jesus. Jesus who knocked down fences and invited all who hunger to the great feast. We want to meet with Jesus, not only here in this one hour, in this religious kind of moment, but we want to meet with Jesus in the quietness of our own lives. We want to meet Jesus in the streets in the faces of people who are desperate and hungry and lonely, that that too is where Jesus can meet us. And that community would have read this passage and heard about Jesus using, turning the water into wine, and they would have understood that. Finally, but there is a table for us. There's a table for us. If we go back to this painting, uh, if you were to look at this, this great picture 
All but one person are involved with what was going on. Only one person was looking straight ahead, and it was Jesus. Almost as if he was looking at the audience who was reading this story, who was looking at this painting, and wondering, where are you? Where are you in this party? I imagine if Mary knew about the shortage, the bride and groom were sweating about it. And I think that one thing for us to know is that many of you might feel like you're running low in your life. Many of you might be feeling like you're getting a little bit bankrupt. And I just want to say that Jesus notices. That Jesus, Jesus notices and cares when we're low, when we're low on joy, when we're low on hope, when we're low on finances, we're low on friendship, that with Jesus there is an unexpected provision. And this wedding proves that. And that provision is mostly found in him. Not in what he gives us, but is actually found in who Jesus is. Is there anything to the fact that Jesus did this first miracle at a wedding? Why a wedding? I want to share that this one miracle is a foretaste of what Jesus was up to. That not only for this one wedding, but for your life as well. For what happens at a wedding. I personally love weddings. I love the crab cakes. I love the community. I love people like your people of different parts of your life merging together in the awkwardness of it. The person who coached my soccer team is right next to my college roommate. You know, like it's just so weird and fun. Uh, there's something to the fact that Jesus created this moment at a wedding, I think. Because it was a foretaste of what Jesus' message was always going to be. And what the true miracle is. For what happens at a wedding is a celebration of when two become one. It's a celebration of intimacy and of unity and of oneness. And again, this is your story. That Jesus, what he was doing there at this wedding, is it was a foretaste of the fact that Jesus' ministry and his mission was that he could go to people who feel like they're far and perhaps unlovable and say, I choose you. You are mine. I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to bring you in, and no one else can undercut our relationship. When people had an encounter with God, oftentimes they would receive a new name. Almost like there's like this new beginning, a new chapter in people's life. And Jesus has this promise for you and I that he can begin a new chapter in our life, one marked by his grace and his mercy. Jesus loves to create new beginnings. For he's the one that said, I can make all things new. And some of you today might be in need of that promise. You might be in need of a new chapter in your life. Maybe it's a new chapter in your relationship with God. Maybe it's a new chapter in your relationship with other people, someone in your family. Maybe it's a new chapter in your journey through addictions. And you failed and you're just desperate for a new beginning. What I would say to that is, if you're in need of that new chapter, look at this table. Jesus has prepared it. Take a seat. Join the wedding party. This first sign that Jesus did in the book of John 
Jesus continues throughout all of Scripture and through our life. And by the way, this is also how it ends. One of the last pictures we receive in Scripture is from Revelation chapter 21. One of the last pictures that God wanted us to have is an understanding of how this ends. Hear these words about another wedding. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, which is like this idea, there's no more chaos. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will, do, he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You see the intimacy. Do you see the claim that God has of ordaining and beautifying a bride and having that bride come and for Jesus to say, for God to say, I am going to be with them, and they are going to be with me, for I will be their people. Or I will be their God, and they will be my people. In verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the order of things have passed away. He who seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. The miracle that Jesus did in Cana is still the miracle that God is doing here and now in your life. That Jesus can make everything all things new, and he will continue to make all things new until we come to the, the end of time when for once and for all, Jesus will restore us back to our home, back to this great feast, and we will experience who we truly were created to be. This is the foretaste of how the story ends and how your story ends. And just like the master of the banquet said, the best is still yet to come.